Hello, bonjour and tante. I'm Paula Simons and this is Alberta Unbound. Kate Beaton first burst onto the world literary stage in 2007 with her webcomic Hark! A Vagrant! a dizzy and delightful series of clever cartoons making mock of historical personages, great artistic figures, and fictional characters such as Sherlock Holmes. Her comic strips had titles like Dude Watchin' with the Brontes and Suffragettes in the City. Her award-winning 2011 book, Hark! A Vagrant, was an international bestseller, as was her follow-up collection, Step Aside Pops. But her new work, Ducks, is something completely different. It's a powerful graphic memoir of her years working in the Fort McMurray oil sands, a dark and occasionally darkly funny analysis of Northern Alberta's work camp culture, and of the social and personal costs paid by those who do the labor of extracting the resources that make our economy run. Kate Beaton now lives in her native Cape Breton, but when I spoke to her, she was visiting her husband's family farm in Caroline, Alberta. A perfect backdrop, perhaps, for this conversation. Kate Beaton, I wanted to then start, I guess, at the beginning of the story, which is what brought you to Fort McMurray in the first place? Well, it was student debt. I I maxed out both the federal and the provincial loans that I could get. And I'm from Nova Scotia and from Cape Breton. And we have a generations-long history of exporting labor to wherever the the current engines of capitalism are running and it's been going on for so long that people do it um in in sort of a a community way where everybody's going everybody's going and so i went even without interrogating why or um oh or even understanding what would happen once i got there because they had gone in my grandfather's time to places like Boston and in my parents' time to places like Southern Ontario to work in auto factories and in places in between, like uh, to work in mining communities in Sudbury or Elliott Lake. And, uh, and in the current time, they were going to Fort McMurray and everybody was going. And I had this massive debt that I had no way to pay back. And I went because it was it was uh, culturally what everybody did. So when you arrived, you got a job working in a tool crib. So explain to us, I mean, it, it sounds sort of like a librarian of tools, but explain to us <laughs> what, what what's the tool crib and what was your job there? In a sense, yeah, it is. Um, the companies that they employ all the tradesmen and... Um, and they have to outfit them all with the tools of their trade. So we were in charge of small equipment, which I think was everything up to, I think, uh, $2,500. So anything from a nail, like a disposable item, to, uh, to something that people did have to use in return, like a, a, a grinder or a generator even. Um, and so uh, I, you had to, if it was something that they had to return, you had to give it a number and put it in the system and make sure that they 
would sign it out and bring it back after a certain amount of time. And they were liable for it if they, if not, but of course people stole things all the time. <laughs> you were trying to uh, keep an inventory steady so that the work could, um, could flow because the, the, the main thing was to keep the work going and, uh, and you never wanted it to have to stop because of a lack of tools and uh, because that costs, that costs money. That, that would be people standing around without equipment and, uh, and being paid to do nothing. And that would be the, the worst scenario. And I guess that that would have given you sort of an observer's perspective because everybody would have come by mm-hmm. yeah, where all you the, were. All the, the welders, the electricians, the pipe fitters, and depending where you were on site, you'd see more of one or the other because you would be stationed, you know, at the gasifier or at the tank farm or at UNO or whatever, you know, and, and you got a real sort of eye for um, for the site because you might be deployed here or there or on a shutdown where they were fixing a giant piece of machinery. Um, and, uh, and I worked at Syncrude first, and then I worked at the Long Lake project with Optinexon. And then I worked at uh, Albion Sands with Shell. Now, one of the things you studied as an undergraduate was anthropology. That's and right. This is a very anthropological, sociological kind of book i wondered if you could tell us i mean we'll 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 dig deeper into this but what was the what was the culture of those work camps when you were there well um your listeners know this but i i often have to spell it out for people outside of um outside of the oil culture but there's a massive difference between living in the town and living in the work camps. People who are unfamiliar with uh, the oil industry often lump everything in Fort McMurray all together, as if Fort McMurray is all of the things all at once, and it is not. And you can see why people in the town are very sensitive about that, because they are trying to build a life for themselves uh, and build a town and build a, a you know, uh, community and and they are a community but in the in the camps the community aspect is missing and that's the main thing and it, it exists in a temporal space and and it, and it exists outside of the rules of regular society but they are by their nature because they are outside of of a town, you know, they, they'll, they'll, these camps will be an hour or two outside of any kind of town. And they'll be as big as a thousand people, 2000 people, um, 2,500 people. And uh, even if they have amenities like gyms, um, a bar, uh, like even, uh, you know, a decent, like meals and and TVs and things like that, it doesn't make up for the fact that you're separated from your family and your friends and everything that makes your community real for long stretches of time. You are rotated from rooms. You're living out of a suitcase. You're working long hours, you know, uh, 12 hour shifts. 
and uh, long shifts, like 14 days on, seven days off, or 21 days on and eight days off, things like that. And even on the days off, you're spending two of them traveling or more if the weather is bad. So you're cut off from society and you're re-socialized in this camp environment that is heavily male also. And so it's, it's not, it's, it's just not a regular social place. Now, when you were there 15, 20 years ago, it was an even more isolated place. I mean, I don't think we think sometimes about how radically communications technologies have changed. Absolutely. So when you were there, there was no FaceTime. There was no no Twitter. There was no no Facebook. There was no streaming. So how much more intense did that make this feeling of isolation, do you think? And you could play DVDs on like personal DVD players. And that was... That was all, but you could never, like, there was no streaming service, absolutely not. Um, and and so the feeling of being cut off was beyond, I remember people lining up for pay phones. And that's a world away from where we are now. When was the last time you ever saw anyone use a pay phone? It was, uh, it had the feeling of a jail, right? And people likened it to jail. Um, but it's true that, that uh I was there at a a, um, a real transition in time for us, technology-wise, where I landed in 2005, where nobody had Facebook, and uh, the the phones that were flip phones, and uh, and they were very rudimentary in in terms of like texting ability and things like that. Um, it took a long time to send a text message. You had to, you know, you were, you, there were three letters per, <laughs> per uh, number, that kind of thing. Um, and then when I left in 2008, everybody had Facebook and, and the phones were changing. I think that the, the first iPhones sort of came out around that time. And so it's a rapid transition into the world that we live now. Because I, I think Twitter came out in 2009. And people started going on it yeah. in 2009. And um, so when you think of that, that jump, that space and time, the world right now is not that different than it was three years ago or four years ago, but from 2005 to 2008, a massive upheaval. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so that, that's the time that my book occupies. You know, you, you made the jail analogy. What struck me is that it was a bit like reading sort of the classic science fiction of the 1950s where people would go to a moon base or be on a starship. And that that sense of being cut off and then sort of claustrophobically confined with people. In this sort of cut off from society, away from regular uh, checks and balances, away from regular interactions with people where all you're doing is work and everything that makes you yourself is, is taken away and all you are is your work and the hours that you put in and and the way that uh, the people talk to you, which is just in this sort of hyper-masculine environment, it, it turns into something different. I mean, this is something that you that you depict really beautifully and disturbingly in the book. In a world that is almost entirely male, where the men are cut off from any sort of forms of, I don't know, domesticity, female civilization. I mean, what impact do you think 
the hypermasculinity of those camps has on the culture and behavior of the people who work there. Because you make the point that, you know, you have men in your life whom you love, you know, and you, and you sort of comment, I don't know how those people, if I transplanted them from their world in Cape Breton and plunked them down here, at what point would they be, would their behavior start to change? The idea that you go out there to make the money, you put your time and you, you work. Uh, of course, for, for, the, for the fewer women that are around, many people experience harassment. That, that's how it translates to me. And that's what's in my book. And a lot of people want to talk about that because it features in the book because I was a young woman there by myself. Um, and then you get, um, you get uh, bosses who don't want to deal with it and, and, uh, and say things like, uh, like, what did you expect? <laughs> well, you know, you came here and what did you expect? And corporations that say that they have policies in place to, uh, to deal with a zero tolerance, that kind of thing, which is all lip service to something that doesn't exist. There is not a zero tolerance policy. Otherwise, you would have to fire so many people. <laughs> and, uh, and if you do speak up, then, um, then you're known as a troublemaker. So why, you know, so, so many women just don't, they don't. And on top of that, when it happens so often and in so many ways, because not everything is so overtly harassment, it's just the way that people talk to you all the time. You become inured to it. You become inured to the way that people look at you and speak down to you and and speak to you, and um, you get used to it. And, and I, I really tried to depict that in the book, and and people have responded to it because they say things like, "I haven't seen this depicted this way before." Um, it's it becomes naturalized to you the way that people speak to you but when um when you only focus on that part of the book sometimes i feel people miss the way that this environment and this kind of um masculine workplace how it behaves is also harmful to the men um, because you saw it often. You saw yeah. the way that when people struggled with how punishing the place could be. And I always have to put in these caveats. Caveats? How do you say it? Yeah, caveats. Yeah. We're going with that. That, yeah. that, that, that it's not everybody because I'm, when I'm, you know, speaking to such a, like a large workforce, some people were fine. But when people were struggling and there was nowhere to turn, there was always drugs, there was uh, alcohol abuse, there were things like that, and there was despair. And um, and the the in in a in a in a, a workplace culture that that prizes sort of uh, male silence on yeah. on issues like like pain. Um, people kept their pains to themselves. I was thinking, I mean, I, I talked about this parallel with, you know, space travel and moon bases, but the other book I kept thinking of as I read yours was Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which mm -hmm. is this portrait of, you know, good people who sort of internalize the evils of colonialism 
and isolation and become warped. And, you know, we don't, we don't often talk about the colonial aspect of those work camps, or at least not as much as, as we ought to. So, no. I mean, I mean, did, did, did you or your colleagues understand yourselves as colonizers in somebody else's space? Uh, this is a difficult question to answer because I can't speak for everybody. I was a 21-year-old to 22, 23 at that time, and I knew very little. I was, I was beginning to understand as I spent time there what was going on, really. But when I first landed there, when I first came there, I knew very little about um, about the history or about the communities around me. I, I, when I came first to the oil sands and we drove by Fort Mackay, I thought it was another mine because it was so close to Sigfrud. And then someone was like, no, that's a town. And I was like, it's a town? It's so, it's like right there. It's like right there, right next to Sinkrude. And then you learn about, you know, how uh, the, how Sinkrude sort of came to be. And then yeah. they, they talked to the, to the people and were like, we're going to build this thing and we're going to promise these things. And then of course, it wasn't really a conversation, was it? It's sort of, they were just going to do what they wanted to do. Yeah. And, um, uh, and we always, when it comes to the talks of colonialism around there, it's always shoved to the side because of the jobs. Yeah. Everyone is like the jobs trump all of the, all of the, colonial damage around there because of of the economics and and everything and we don't need to we don't need to talk about we don't need to deal with um the colonial problems because of the money and the job <laughs> and that, that is so and I have to say, there, there are two Kates. There's the one in the book who's very young and inexperienced and doesn't, you know, is not educated in a lot of this stuff. And then there's me, the author, and I'm 39. And I've had a lot of time to reflect and educate myself. And, um, and I can't speak for everybody out there. I don't know what people know. And I don't know what the conversation is right now. I, I certainly hope that it's better than it was. I think one of the things that's really extraordinary about this book is the empathy with which you write about the men in the camp, uh, giving them their dignity and even celebrating the dignity of labor. And at the same time, some of those men treated you atrociously, um, you know, not just in terms of sexual violence, but, you know, dehumanizing you, um, treating you either with, you know, uh, sort of paternalism at sometimes at best or, you know, really, you know, grotesque misogyny at worst. So I'm wondering, how do you, how do you as a, as the, the two Kate Beatons write with such 
compassion and insight about the men who surrounded you and oftentimes treated you really terribly. I feel like in a lot of ways, the book is a book about class. Um, that, um, that I ended up out there because I fell in step with a, with a, a system that told me to go work where everybody was working. Because if you lived in Cape Breton in, through the time that I was in high school and everything was shutting down, they were shutting everything down, the coal mines, steel, uh, the pulp mill. And of course we had gone through like the cod moratorium and the fisheries collapse and all this stuff. And everybody was looking down on us from other parts of the country as like the, the, the money gobbling, you know, handout people. <laughs> and, uh, and companies treated everybody like shit. And, um, and we were used to that. And, uh, and sometimes I do get this question about empathy, but the people around me were my people, even yeah. when they treated me badly. You saw how much you were worth as a worker and how people were allowed to treat you. Yeah. So I think people sometimes carry, I think there's some class anger in this book. Mm -hmm. And I think that we direct our anger around. And I think that sometimes people ended up out there, even people like me, because I grew up, we were always told, you have to leave here. You have to leave for a better job. The money is somewhere else. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you like it here. It doesn't matter if you love your home. You have to go where the money is. And it doesn't matter how they treat you. Any job is a good job. They can treat you like shit. And, and that's good. It's good because you're getting paid. And... So even when people aren't treating me well, I can see where they're coming from. There were a lot of sort of people who lost a lot who went out there. They lost their livelihoods in the middle of their life. And they had kids at home that they had to move away from to support. And that's a lot of the people who were talking down to me. Because here I come with my college degree and I'm, uh, for instance, uh, I, I was in the tool crib and then I got moved into the office because I knew how to work a computer. And a lot of them were not nice to me <laughs> after that. But I don't blame them. They lost their jobs when they were like 40 and had to move out to Fort McMurray to, to pay for their, like to, to support their families back home and live in these camps. And 
one of them, one of, you know, you saw people get divorced. You saw people get, get into drugs. You saw, you saw just the kind of despair around this ultimatum that they faced. And, and when you live with people and you work with them and you see what they're going through, you can't help but empathize. You call the book ducks. The duck anecdote doesn't come until quite deep mm -hmm. in the book. And I wondered, I guess, A, why you chose ducks as your title. And B, you know, I think about the ducks who see the bitumen lakes down below the tailings ponds. And they think, oh, that looks like a nice place to land. And then they get stuck in the tar. Mm -hmm. Are are the people you met the ducks who saw <laughs> the who saw the sort of the mirage of of prosperity and then got stuck? Well, yeah, yeah. It's the, the metaphors apt, isn't it? They uh, they they thought it was a safe place to land, and it wasn't. And you found that with a lot of people, and. Uh, and and in different ways, you know, uh, some people came and they got stuck. They got attached to the money. They couldn't give up the money and they couldn't leave. You found that a lot. And uh, and when the oil dropped, um, when the price of oil dropped and you saw things like suicides go up, yeah, that was a very difficult thing to... Sometimes people, you know, when again, when they're like, "How can you be so empathetic?" and and then you, when you see some statistics like that, you're like, "This is horrifying," um, because that's all they they put their worth into was how much money they could make. And the other thing about the ducks is, it was the first time that the international community really took a look at Fort McMurray. And the, and what was going on there environmentally, uh, and, and by that I mean like people had been interested before, but this was front page news on the New York Times, and, and then it, you know the the oil companies had to come out and be like, we're so sorry, you know, Syncrude had to come out and be like, wow, so sad, <laughs> and, and then they uh, and then they had to pay a fine, and then they had to like yeah. put these measures in. As the noise, the a, noise, the noise cannons, the, boom, scare the ducks. Yeah, the noise cannons, and they put scarecrows in the lakes, as if this was the first thing that ever happened that yeah. was bad, and and then it and then when it was taken care of, it also sort of receded into the distance, and yeah. and you're like, and it's because like the ducks were so visually arresting, yes. and we all are like, oh my god, so many ducks, and and it was terrible, but. At the same time, there were articles coming out. They were on CBC. I remember reading them about um, indigenous people. They were catching fish and they had like cancerous lesions on them, like bumps and lesions. And people were like, who cares? <laughs> like no front page news. Um, and they were like, we've been catching deformed fish. And, and they're saying things like the berries don't taste the same and the trees look different. And like things are, are not, and we have cancer. Uh, like, we have rare cancers here in Fort Mackay and Fort Chip. 
and and higher rates of these rare cancers that we've never had before. And people are like, you know, I think they did a study and they were like, I don't think so. Instead of listening people to people and believing them when they say they're dying, um, it was so much easier for the oil companies to come out and be like, oh, I'm sorry about these ducks. We'll put in noisemakers than it is for them to be like, I think we're poisoning people. Alberta Unbound, which I've been doing for a while now. I mean, the, it has this sort of pompous mis, you know, mission statement to deconstruct and interrogate Alberta mythologies. I mean, you're a Cape Bretoner, but mm-hmm. you know, you lived in Alberta for you know for a number of years. You have family in Alberta. I'm so married to an Albertan. You're married to an Albertan. I mean, you're telling one of Alberta's most important stories. So putting your anthropologist hat back on for a minute. What do you think the oil sands and the work camp culture mean to Alberta culturally? And part two of that question, what do you think has been the impact on Alberta of having so many people from Atlantic Canada, whether they're from Cape Breton or Newfoundland or the Miramichi, um, coming in and out? What has that done to Alberta's culture and sense of identity? I don't know. Um... I, uh, I'm married to, uh, my husband is Morgan Murray. He's from Caroline, the heart of Alberta. And, uh, and he described, he's helped me understand certain things about, about Alberta culture. Uh, for one, a lot of people out here, they work in the oil industry, but they don't go to Fort McMurray really. They, they work on like, like the oil rigs here. Yeah. And, um, and you 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 see more of uh, uh, like the people working in the camps and stuff. They're from like away. Like what? Uh, and and I have to say, like a lot of Fort McMurray felt to me like it was from people from away. But but I can't say for sure because I don't know. But uh, that said, I do know that like a lot of people that I grew up with, they live here. My sister lives in Edmonton. My cousins live in Edmonton. Uh, my other sister lived here for many years. She just moved home. She worked for Alberta Health Services, and uh, and so you have a lot of naturalized citizens out here from from the <laughs> East Coast, and you've got a lot of the songs. You ever heard that song from Newfoundland? You're <laughs> you're still just a Newfie in a Calgary hat. <laughs> it's pretty good. He's wearing a cowboy hat, and his his dad comes to meet him, and he's like, he's like, you're just a Newfie in a Calgary hat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> pretty good uh and and i find that they i find that they really the ones that move here like you notice them them change politically and and things a lot of the time it's it's uh I, that's not totally true uh, it, sometimes it is they get a lot more into country music <laughs> <laughs> uh but it's uh um people make it their home you know it, it it's this for, for like the longest time for like the last god 30 years this has been the place where the opportunity was so even people who said when they were leaving like oh i'm not gonna stay i'm not gonna be one of those who's gonna stay i'm gonna come home they they marry here they have the kids here and then you're here you're here and you become like alberta's your home and that's that's the way it's been 
for the longest time. Uh, and I couldn't say how many Easterners are out here, but, but it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot. And I don't know. I think for a while there was an attitude like, oh, these people are coming and taking our jobs. But I don't think it's that. I don't think no, that. I don't, it. I don't think so. I want to ask you this in closing. I mean, in some ways, this is a time of great celebration for you. You have a mm. book that is being, I mean, critically acclaimed. Uh, you're on a, you know, book tours at a time when hardly any author gets a proper book tour anymore. Um, you're, you know, I mean, the, the the book is being lauded, but it's obvious. I mean, talking to you today, that this is very, this is very painful stuff. And I don't know. To, I don't know to what extent writing the book and then having to talk about the book uh, is, well, no. is 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 traumatic. I mean, and I and I've you know I, I didn't want to dwell on your personal trauma that you talk about in the book, but I mean, just talking to you makes me feel like I've been picking scabs off of somebody else's no. soul. <laughs> no, I mean. It isn't, it isn't. I actually feel like there's quite a, a bit of humor in the book. In yeah, a lot no, of ways there is, there is, yeah. There, and I, I didn't mean to to like take this conversation <laughs> too much of that. Um, but uh, um, I guess I was I was on this Alberto-centric cast podcast and, and I thought I'd talk about <laughs> it a little bit because people might, people might understand a bit more. Um, because uh, because these are issues that I guess I thought maybe they'd be important to some of your listeners. Oh, yes. um, you know, uh, but but that being said, like I feel like things have changed. It, there is that documentary on CBC Gem called "Digging in the Dirt," and it is about yes. mental health in the U.S. Made, made, made um, by Omar Mualem, who's also he was one of our first guests on this show. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, um, and and like that's a conversation that was not going to happen when I was there. And it shows that things are changing and because they had to, they had to, uh, it was so uh, like, that was a, a bleak spot in the, in the time that I was there, but, but it's hopeful. I think that, um, that something like that can be put out and, and show that there's the capacity for change. And, and I don't know what it's like to live in the camps right now. I, I hope that it's different than when I was there, but um, I mean, I, uh, uh, I think that the appetite for this book is partially because there has been so few narratives coming out yes. about life in that, in those places. And I hope there will be more because mine is just one story. And, and there are so many thousands of workers who have lived there and, and spent much longer than I have lived there. My God, I, one of the girls in the book, um, I talked to her and she's like, I spent 15 years in, in the camps. Like she, she rose through the management ranks to, and I was like, Holy God, 15 years. Um, it's so long to me. And, uh, and I like, I, I really, really hope that there will be more studies about the effects of these uh, like this life on, on people, the workers, the families, the, um, the whole thing. Um, I hope that people will uh, will interrogate corporations and companies more about their involvement in um, the the environment, in the health issues that people have. And um, I hope that we'll see more 
uh, more narratives come out because I, I, yeah. I know people are interested. And before this, before my book came out, you would see like, uh, mostly you would see like sort of exploitive um, exposés that people would put yeah. out about going to Fort McMurray. Like, you know, like I landed in this dirty town where like the dirty man drove dirty trucks and was dirty. <laughs> I went to the strip bar and uh, and everyone was drunk <laughs> and they were, it was gross. And then I flew away and like they, they, they just went to the yeah. surface level of yeah. the town and never even like, and I remember when Fort McMurray burnt and like the strip club were like having a fundraiser for the town I think because they're members of the community like come on yeah. you have to look a little further into what you're uh you can't come in with with the with the the thesis for your thing already and then just write it based on like what you're looking for yeah exactly um, anyway I'd love to hear more just more narratives from from a, a varied group of people and uh, and I think that's something that all Canadians could honestly benefit from because we have relied on this energy sector for so long without thinking about the people who are in it. Yeah. Yeah. And the costs to them. Yeah. Yeah. All we hear about is Jason Kenney's war room, which sucks. <laughs> Kate Beaton, it has been a, a privilege uh, to speak with you. Thank you so much for this beautiful book. Uh, and thank you very much for coming to be my guest on Alberta Unbound. Uh, you're, you're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Kate Beaton's new book, Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands, is published by Drawn and Quarterly. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings and written and presented by me, Paula Simons, independent senator from Alberta. If this is your first time listening, welcome. I hope you'll be intrigued enough to explore our back catalogue of conversations with everyone from former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin to poet and rapper Cadence Weapon to Canadian Medical Association President Alika Lafontaine. If you like the show, please subscribe. Leave us a review on your favourite podcast app and help us share the authentic voices and stories of Alberta. Thank you again. Merci and hi hi.